Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of rape, assault, and murder of minors. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's a hot, muggy day in July 2008. The kind of summer afternoon that keeps most people inside with air conditioning. But next to a small river in rural Michigan, Detective Mac McLaughlin is on his hands and knees. He's digging in the soil, searching for a hidden gravesite. This isn't the first place he's looked. It's not even the second or third. When this spot comes up empty too, Mac moves up the riverbank. He gets down on his knees, puts his hands in the dirt, and tries again. He's been digging at this mystery for 12 years. And he can't shake the feeling that the truth is somewhere along this riverbank. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for decades. We'll explore a vast array of offenses from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're covering the story of Cindy Zarzicki, a Michigan teenager who walked to a nearby ice cream shop and never came home. Her sudden disappearance left her family without closure. Over a decade later, a tenacious detective and a young trainee retraced the original investigation and uncovered a pair of cassette tapes that became priceless clues. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post workout snack, choose the farm fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and six times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. When a loved one disappears, they leave behind a void. A family can feel so hollowed out that they can't move forward. They become incapacitated by grief. In cases like this, it takes a strong investigator to support them, to take the reins and look for clues, to pick up the broken pieces of their lives, stitch them back together, and try to find justice. This story is about a family like that, 
an investigator like that. And at the center of it all is one teenage girl, Cindy Zarzicki. It's 1986 in East Point, Michigan, just outside Detroit. The spring weather is crisp and sunny. 13-year-old Cindy Zarzicki winds up to throw a softball to her younger brother, Eddie. Cindy's a softball prodigy. She's got broad shoulders, is strong for her age, and has a go-getter attitude. She's even the MVP of her church team, known as a powerful cleanup hitter. Softball is also one thing that she can share with her father, Ed. He's a single dad, working as a custodian at a local school. He's much more comfortable talking about sports than discussing Madonna's latest album. He tries to connect with Cindy as best he can, but it's tough. She's in a rebellious phase, into pop stars and boys. She and her older sister, Connie, spend hours making mixtapes of radio hits and mimicking the newest fashion trends. Cindy's latest idea is to shave the side of her head like Cindy Lauper, which Ed quickly shuts down. It's not the only spat Ed and Cindy have this month. Like most teenagers in the 1980s, Cindy and her friends hang out at the nearby mall. It's about seven miles from Cindy's house, which is far enough to make Ed nervous. So he puts a simple rule in place. No walking home from the mall. She has to either get a ride with friends or call him to pick her up. It doesn't take long for her to break that rule. Cindy walks home from the mall about a week later. When Ed finds out, he grounds her. She has to come straight home after school. This means no sleepovers, no weekend plans, and no mall. Worst of all for Cindy, it means no Scott. Scott Ream is Cindy's newest crush. He goes to a different school, so they have to meet up at the mall. Cindy's not going to let anything get between them, especially not this weekend. Because Scott's father told her that on Sunday, there's going to be a surprise birthday party for him in Pontiac, about 30 miles away. She can't miss it. So the day before the party, Saturday, April 19th, Cindy comes up with a plan. It starts with sneaking out of her house to visit her best friend, Kathy. Cindy arrives at Kathy's a little after 6 p.m. She explains what's going on. She needs to get to Pontiac the following morning without her dad knowing. She asks to use Kathy's phone for a quick call. When she hangs up, she's ecstatic. She just lined up a ride to Scott's birthday party. Cindy asks Kathy if she wants to go with her, but Kathy says no. This all feels wrong. Cindy is sneaking around, and Kathy doesn't want any part of it. Cindy says something like, fine, she'll go alone. She sneaks back into her house that night. The next morning, April 20th, she spins a lie. She asks her father if she can go to church with Kathy. She says they'll meet at the nearby Dairy Queen before the service. Ed says, okay. The Dairy Queen is a family favorite and the church is close by. He doesn't see any harm in letting her go. Cindy pulls on her favorite white boots, styles her hair, and stuffs a few mixtapes into her denim purse. She walks out the door. Cindy does go to the Dairy Queen, but she doesn't meet up with Kathy. And she doesn't 
go to church. By 5 p.m., it's nearing dinner time at the Zarziki house, and Cindy isn't there. Her father, Ed, has no idea where she is. She should have been home from church hours ago. He calls Cindy's mother, Alice. Now, they've been divorced for five years, but she still lives nearby. He thinks Cindy might have gone there after church, still angry about being grounded, but Alice hasn't seen her. Now, Ed is furious and worried. He drives to the mall, then the local parks, and even the Dairy Queen, but there's no sign of Cindy. He calls her friend's parents, including Kathy's, but none of them have seen her. Finally, just before midnight, he goes to the police. The cops say it sounds like Cindy ran away. They figure she'll be home soon. Now, according to a 2009 Dateline documentary, they tell Ed he has to wait 24 hours to file a missing person report. And Cindy's only been gone for about 12. So Ed waits, hoping she will come home or call him to pick her up from wherever she is. But the phone doesn't ring that night. The Zerziki house stays silent. Ed officially reports Cindy missing the next morning, and two patrol officers are assigned to look for her. They go to her school and pull Kathy out of class to ask some questions. She tells them everything she knows, but quickly realizes they aren't taking her seriously. They think Cindy ran away, so they want to know who she might be staying with. When Kathy tries to tell them Cindy lied to her dad and had plans to go secretly to Scott Reams' birthday party, they barely listen to her. Kathy doesn't believe her friend ran away, and neither do the Zarzikis. Cindy's sister, Connie, even points out that all Cindy's clothes and makeup are still there. If she ran away, why didn't she pack? But the cops won't be swayed. Cindy was angry about being grounded, so they assume she left home in a small act of rebellion. And well, they've got statistics on their side. One in seven teenagers run away from home in the U.S. each year. Nearly half report having done so after a conflict with a parent, and 75% are girls. To them, Cindy fits the profile of a disgruntled teenage runaway, and they don't see any evidence to the contrary. At first, Cindy's family refuses to accept this conclusion. They keep looking for her, printing flyers and publishing ads in the paper. They even hang around Scott's home in the local trailer park, hoping to spot her. Then, a few weeks later, Ed gets a call from the Detroit police. They give him the heartbreaking news he's feared since April 20th. There's a body in the morgue. It looks like Cindy. Ed's heart sinks. He goes to Detroit to identify her. But it's not Cindy. Ed's beyond relieved. He holds on to hope that his daughter is out there alive. And the police do too. She's still classified as a missing person and a likely runaway. But as weeks turn into months, then years, Cindy never gets in touch with her family or friends. Ed continues working as a custodian at the local high school, 
where Cindy's friends see the heartbroken look on his face every day. Alice publishes personal ads looking for her daughter. Cindy's siblings keep her favorite cassette tapes, hearing their sister in every lyric. There's a void in their lives where Cindy used to be. Now, all they can do is wait and hope. On Cindy's 18th birthday, June 8th, 1990, her family joins a local reporter to publish an article about her case. They write as though she'll be reading it, including life updates about loved ones and pleas for her to call or come home. Ed never changes the home phone number. He never sells the house where Cindy grew up, even as his other children move away and start families of their own even when he gets remarried and leaves East Point. While her parents and siblings never fill the void Cindy left behind, they learn to build their lives around it. Meanwhile, her case grows colder. In June 1994, the family holds a candlelight vigil marking Cindy's 21st birthday, Several media outlets report on it, and thanks to public pressure, the police take another look at Cindy's file. It's been eight years since she went missing. Eight years with no word from her, no sign that she's out there. Finally, the police reclassify her disappearance as a possible homicide. And unlike a missing runaway, a murder case, no matter how cold is a crime. This allows detectives to allocate more time and resources to solving it. The East Point detectives decide to restart the investigation around Scott Ream, Cindy's old crush. He's now 22 years old, but still lives nearby. They track him down in the first week of July, just before Independence Day. Scott agrees to talk to them after the holiday weekend. But he never makes it to the interview. Thanks to our sponsor, BetterHelp. Today I'm sitting down with Hesu Joe, licensed therapist and head of clinical operations at BetterHelp, to discuss mental health, the human experience, and my journey with therapy. So how does therapy enhance the human experience? In therapy, you get to really dissect deeply your personal beliefs, your values, your opinions, your stances on things, so that you can start to have your outward expression with other people match your internal experience. And this is what it is to live authentically. When somebody's not living authentically, that's when they're experiencing dissonance. That's when you're feeling all kinds of symptoms manifesting because you're not being true to who you are. So I think in therapy, you can start figuring out who you really are so that you can love this person, feel comfortable with this person, feel proud of who this person is. And through rational ways to solve problems in healthy ways, you can come out of it with a healthy human experience. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched over 3 million people with professionally licensed therapists that are available 100% online. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash parcast. That's betterhelp.com slash parcast.
This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. On July 4th, 1994, Scott Ream is struck and killed by a drunk driver. And the police never get a chance to question him about Cindy's disappearance. This isn't the only setback to the case. Not long after Scott's death, the lead detective leaves the East Point police force. Suddenly, Cindy's case has nobody assigned to it. And it falls to the cracks for another two years. Then, in the summer of 1996, the East Point police chief drops a battered yellowing box on the desk of Detective Mac McLaughlin. Mac's a member of the department's youth bureau, which is focused on crimes involving minors. The old box contains everything about case number 864651YB, the disappearance of Cindy Zarzicki. The chief gives Mac a simple instruction. Solve it. That night, Mac stays late at the office. He combs through the box and files, revisiting every bit of information the police have gathered since Cindy disappeared. He reads her diary, looks through childhood pictures, and reviews statements from her family and friends. Max, a father himself, with three daughters and a son. He's devoted his life and career to helping troubled youth, so he knows how kids think and feel. And to him, the evidence in Cindy's file gives the impression of a happy teenager with no reason to abandon her life. Mac is certain that Cindy didn't run away. Instead, he believes she was the victim of foul play. He even identifies a prime suspect. In the old case file, Mac finds a copy of a statement from Scott Reem's mother. After Scott was killed, she told the police she believed her ex-husband, Art Reem, was involved in Cindy's disappearance. She said Art was a convicted pedophile. In 1975, he served three years in prison for sexually assaulting a 14-year-old girl. Her statement ended up in Cindy's file, but after the original detective left the force, nobody followed up. Now, finally, Mac picks up the thread. But besides Cindy's crush on Scott, he can't find another connection between Art and Cindy or 
any evidence of a crime. The next logical step seems to be questioning Art Ream, but Mac doesn't feel like he's qualified. As a youth bureau detective, he has little experience interrogating criminals. It's not as easy as walking in and asking questions. Investigators have to learn to interrogate. Mac knows he'll be playing a mental game of chess, and Art Ream is a formidable opponent. During previous arrests, Art was notorious for manipulating investigators. He likes to dodge questions, argue over semantics, and turn statements back on the police, all while feigning ignorance. On top of his inexperience, Max currently juggling over 40 active cases a month, and they have to be his priority, not a cold case. Sadly, this is the reality for many law enforcement agencies. In offices without dedicated cold case departments, resources are limited and solving active cases is considered more important. Many officers take on cold cases as hobbies or side projects in addition to their current caseload, and they're the first thing to be set aside when an investigator is overworked or retires from the force. The unfortunate truth is there are far more cases than investigators to solve them, and often there simply isn't enough time. In Cindy's case, these structural problems become yet another roadblock. It takes eight more years before there's any movement in the investigation. By this point, it's 2004, and Mac hasn't forgotten about Cindy or Art Ream. He's upped his detective game, too. Now Mac's taking classes on interrogation techniques with a police training agency in Chicago. He shares Cindy's file with one of his training officers, telling him about how the cold case has stuck with him over the years. The file ends up on the officer's desk, and one of the agency's interns swipes it out of curiosity. This intern is a 23-year-old college undergraduate named Jen Lebo. Jen's studying criminal psychology, and Cindy's case hooks her immediately. Jen takes the file home every night and pours over the details. She wants to get involved, but she's not a police officer. She goes back to her boss, admits that she peeked at the file, and asks if she can lend Mac her digital detective skills. Well, Mac came up in an era before the internet, and he's not keen on computers. Remember, this is 2004. Social media is just getting started, and many public records still aren't digitized. Finding information online takes a significant amount of skill and patience. Jen's assistance is a game-changer. With his new detective techniques and Jen's research abilities, Mac starts on Cindy's case from square one. This means re-interviewing the original witnesses from 1986, and the problem is many of them left East Point long ago or changed their names. So Jen dives into an internet scavenger hunt. She manages to track down two of Cindy's closest friends, 
One is named Teresa, and the other is Kathy, who Cindy saw the night before she vanished. Neither woman has seen or spoken to the other since the late 1980s, and Mac interviews them separately. But they both tell the same story. Remember, when Cindy vanished, she was getting a ride to Scott's surprise birthday party in Pontiac. And according to the Dateline documentary, both Teresa and Kathy overheard Cindy making phone calls to confirm her ride. They heard her say she'd look for a white van at the Dairy Queen. And even in 1986, they knew who Cindy was talking to. Art Ream. Kathy and Teresa said Cindy agreed to a ride with Art to the party, but they later learned that Scott's birthday had actually happened months before. They suspected that there was no party. Art Ream made the whole thing up. Teresa and Kathy say they told the police these details in 1986, but the cops were convinced Cindy ran away. Their stories didn't fit that narrative, and because they were just kids, they weren't taken seriously. But now, Mac has enough evidence and experience to question Art personally. It's May 2007. Art is 58 years old, and he's already in prison. Art is locked up in Muskegon, Michigan, a decade into a 12-year sentence for the rape of a minor. It's his second conviction for a sexual crime against a teenager. When they question him about Cindy, Mac and Jen go in hot. They speak as if they already have all the information they need. They say they know he killed her, hit her body, and that it's time for him to come clean. This is a technique called positive confrontation. Investigators start the interview by stating the evidence points to the suspect's guilt. Then they offer a sympathetic monologue, explaining that they understand why the suspect committed the crime. The intent is to undercut any denial and encourage a confession. But it doesn't work on art. He clams up, and no amount of questioning will get him to talk. Jen goes back to Chicago, and Mac returns to East Point. After Art's busted interrogation, they need some hard evidence to tie him to Cindy, and Mac's got a hunch about where to start. When Art was arrested in 1997, he owned a carpet business. He ran it out of an old warehouse, and the building has been sitting untouched since the day he was put in handcuffs. Mac wants to search the property for clues about Cindy's case. He knows it's a gamble. It's been over 30 years since Cindy vanished, and the likelihood of finding any forensic evidence is almost zero. But Mac is undeterred. He's been working on this case for over a decade. His own children have grown up during his investigation of Cindy's disappearance. And he's still driven by that one simple goal. Solve it. The warehouse is filled with old carpets and dust. 
Mac and another detective comb through Art's office, but come up empty. Frayed textiles, rodent nests, and rusted equipment are everywhere. It's a labyrinth of abandoned junk. Then, Mac's partner comes across an old watch box. It stands out amid all the garbage, so Mac opens it up, and he finds something astonishing. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. At Art Ream's abandoned carpet warehouse, Mac finally uncovers a piece of hard evidence in Cindy's case. It's a newspaper article about her disappearance. The clipping was carefully torn out of a weekly coupon mailer and tucked away inside a watch box. Mac doesn't believe it's just a coincidence. He suspects Art kept the article as a trophy. Some murderers, especially serial killers, keep trophies of their crimes. It allows them to relive the experience and hold on to the memory of their victim. These trophies are often photographs of the crime scene or the victim, and this clipping has Cindy's final softball picture in it. Mac adds his find to the statements from Kathy, Teresa, and Art's ex-wife. Then he goes to the district attorney. Mac's sure he's got enough to build a murder case against Art. The DA agrees. One of his prosecutors issues a warrant for Art Ream. The charge is first-degree murder. With the warrant in hand, Mac and Jen return to the prison in Muskegon. It's their last chance to question Art before he gets a lawyer and the case goes to trial. Their objective is simple. Get him to confess to killing Cindy Zarzicki. But when they confront him this time, Art wants to play. As the hours drag on, it's clear Art is enjoying the interrogation. It's almost like he's happy somebody has finally caught him. He knows they want something from him, which gives him control over the conversation. At the very least, it's a chance for him to get out of his cell. Art spends hours playing with them, hinting at what he might know about Cindy's disappearance. One of his perverse games is hot or cold. Jen has a list of the different properties Art has owned over the years. She suspects he might have hidden Cindy's remains at one of these locations, so she asks him where to start looking. She points to one, and Art suggests it's no good. She points to another. Art shrugs, like maybe they should try searching there. But he's doing this from multiple locations, which makes his answers useless. Max, frustrated, 
and at one point, he steps out of the interrogation room. Once he's gone, Art leans over to Jen and whispers something along the lines of, you know, it didn't happen like they said it did. And then, Art shuts up. It's 2.30 a.m., they've been at it for eight hours. Art says he wants to go to sleep. Despite their best efforts, Mac and Jen can't get a confession out of him. Art's trial begins in the summer of 2008. He's already been in prison for over a decade on a previous sexual assault charge, and he's supposed to be released soon. If Art isn't convicted of Cindy's murder, a violent pedophile will be back on the streets within weeks. But if Art is convicted, he'll receive a mandatory life sentence with no possibility of parole. So, at the trial, Art tries to get a deal. He says he didn't murder Cindy, but he knows where she's buried. He offers to reveal the location of the grave in exchange for a reduced sentence. It seems like Art is playing games again, but both Mac and the Zarzikis are on his side. Cindy's father, Ed, has prayed for the strength to forgive Art, and he's found it. Her siblings, Connie and Eddie Jr., hope to finally get a chance to say goodbye. They all want Cindy found more than they want Art convicted of killing her. With their support, the prosecutor offers to drop the charge from first to second degree murder, which means a life sentence is no longer mandatory, but it's still possible. Then, at the 11th hour, Art pulls back. He doesn't like the terms. He wants to be out of prison sooner, and second-degree murder could still leave him behind bars for life. So the deal collapses. It seems like Art was just playing another game. Except this time, he loses. In June 2008, the jury takes less than two hours to reach a verdict. Guilty. Despite his manipulations, Art receives the very life sentence he tried to avoid. And after 22 years, Cindy's case is finally closed. But she's still missing. For Mac, that means the case isn't solved yet. And he knows there's only one way to find answers. He has to go back and play Art's twisted games again. A few days after the trial, Mac returns to the prison and offers Art one last chance to come clean. It's time to reveal where Cindy's body is. But Art refuses to say anything. He's in prison for the rest of his life, so he wants the family and Mac to stay in agony for the rest of their lives, too. Mac tells him that won't happen. With the guilty verdict, Cindy's family has closure. For them, it's over. 
Art doesn't like that. It means his power over Mac and the Zarziki family is gone. By removing the significance of finding Cindy's body, Mac has made the checkmate move in their mental chess game. Mac gets up to leave, but Art stops him. He says Mac doesn't have closure, so how could the family? Doesn't he want to know Art's story about what happened? Mac says he doesn't. He just wants to find Cindy. So he sets out a legal pad and a pen and tells Art he's got five minutes to draw a map to the location where he buried her. But Art doesn't pick up the pen. Mac leaves, hoping to never see Art again. A week later, Art's lawyer calls and says he's drawn the map. The next day, Mac and Jen are out in the Michigan countryside following Art's crude, hand-drawn map along a river. The area used to be owned by former friends of Art's. He hunted and kept beehives out there. Even with the map, finding Cindy is going to be incredibly difficult. This area is on a floodplain, and over the past two decades, the river has overflowed several times. It's possible any remains were washed away long ago. Not only that, Art's map is broad, covering several acres, so to narrow down the search area, Mac enlists a team to help. And most crucial of all, they bring cadaver-sniffing dogs. These dogs are highly trained forensic tools. Canine noses have about 50 times as many scent receptors as humans. These dogs give a specific signal, like sitting or raising a paw, when they smell decay and decomposition. Unfortunately, while the dogs circle a few spots, they don't signal any strong scents. Still, the team starts with the first area the dogs circled. They dig, but come up empty. They try another spot. Nothing. A third location also reveals only dirt. It's becoming obvious the map Art drew isn't specific enough. They could dig up a dozen acres and still not come across a small 20-year-old grave. Mac reluctantly decides to use his last option. He goes to the prison and pulls Art out of his cell. He puts him in a van and brings him to the riverbank. He tells Art that they're done playing games. Mac orders him in no uncertain terms to show them the exact spot where Cindy is buried. Art wanders along the river for a few minutes, then turns and paces back and forth. Mac points out the last spot the cadaver dog circled, but Art says he thinks the grave was closer to the river. He walks near the water, looks at the trees, at the grass. Art's wasting time again, enjoying his respite in the fresh air. This time, nobody's willing to play his game. Max sends Art back to the prison, where he remains to this day. 
By now, the July sun is low in the sky. Mosquitoes are coming out, and everyone is tired. Following his gut instinct, Mac returns to the spot Art claimed was too far from the river. He knows they won't be able to get the team or the dogs out here again. This is their last chance. They jam their shovels into the earth one more time. And they find something just a few feet under the surface. It's a human leg bone. Then they uncover a clavicle. A forensic pathologist on site says they're definitely from the skeleton of a teenager. Mac gets down on his hands and knees, wipes away a section of dirt, and reveals a flap of tattered denim. He thinks it's a pair of jeans until he finds a long strap. It's a purse. Mac gently opens the bag and pulls out a pair of cassettes. They're homemade mixtapes. On the road nearby, Cindy's brother and sister wait for news, holding each other in long hugs. Connie and Eddie Jr. fight back tears as the team emerges from the trees. They come over and show the siblings the tapes. Connie's sure the cassettes were a birthday present for Scott. She's also certain that, like the MVP power hitter she was, Cindy likely fought Art with all her might. But to them, the specifics of her death are no longer important. They've found Cindy. They can finally say goodbye. They can finally move forward. Mac makes a call to Ed, a call he's been waiting 22 years to receive. The two fathers talk briefly, but the conversation says everything it needs to. It helps Cindy's family make sense of what happened. They now know she didn't run away. She was taken away. But their memories of her weren't. The Zarzikis each have fond recollections of Cindy and her spunky, upbeat personality. A favorite is about one of their final family vacations together. The summer before Cindy vanished, they all went camping in Canada. As they sat around the fire, Cindy started to sing. As always, it was a hit song, except this one was Lee Greenwood's Proud to be an American, and Cindy sang it at the top of her lungs on Canadian soil. Her father still chuckles when he thinks about it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on the murder of Cindy Zarzicki, amongst the many sources we used, we found Dateline NBC's coverage of the case extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast, with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. 
Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Andrew Messer, edited by Karis Allen and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>